Hey there, welcome to the Alt-Tab podcast where we bring thought bubbles to life. Our guests are emerging voices and movers and shakers in their fields. Here, they'll be sharing their insights, lessons and stories on the things that they have been working on. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, entrepreneur or just curious about the world of innovation, this is the podcast for you. As a reminder, this content is for information purposes only. It should not be taken as legal, business, tax or investment advice or be used to evaluate an investment or security. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Alt-Tab. This is actually our first group pod. We thought we'd get together um, and have a chat about some of the latest developments in the news, especially with the fallout with some of the major banks in America. So we've got with me today Charlie Chen, uh, Robert Chen, and also David Lai. Uh, My name is Louise Xu, and um, we're going to kick it off to really just um, dive deep into what happened. Charlie, maybe you can sort of, I mean, you were following it the whole weekend um, during the fallout. What happened? I uh, probably need a life uh, after that weekend. <laughs> I remember, I think you probably guys saw on our WhatsApp group chat, I was just every couple of minutes going, this is what has happened to USDC and, and, and all that. So that's that was quite an eventful uh, Saturday Sydney time for us. Um, but I think it's probably best we kind of peel back an onion a bit and see what kind of unfolded before that, which is, um, you know, the, what happened to, to Silvergate and subsequently what Silicon Valley Bank and that made a lot of headlines. So I think a lot of the, us thinking about before we even get to the USDC peg and the implications of that to the blockchain industry, think about what what is it what happened to those banks that um, that then led up to the, the things that unfolded in our sphere of, of, uh, of in our environment. So um, that's probably the starting point, focusing on the banks. But I'll, I'd love to hear what you guys um, thought and observing during that period of time as well. Yeah, awesome. I mean, my my first impression was the Silicon Valley Bank was going to be a huge issue, right? We we cover the tech sector exclusively, so our entire client roster were in some ways exposed. And when we first heard about it, it was quite frightening. Um, what was going to happen to some of the transactions that were kicking along? Uh, what were going to happen to some of the portfolio companies of VCs and private equity companies that we're working with? And, you know, and what would that really mean, one, for us, but two, for the entire tech sector that was so highly leveraged to this single bank? And so... Yeah, it was it was crazy waking up to all of that and the conversations that ensued afterwards. I mean, so many crazy things, um, people shooting around, and yeah, I mean, uh, gladly it all kind of worked out, but really scary in the moment, to be honest. Yeah, it's definitely it, it definitely I think for for me, I mean, there's no there's no doubt about it. It's a worldwide event. There are so many eyes set on it, and. Um, I think for me, I probably had my head buried in my work and I kind of had the opportunity to learn and observe from, you know, listening and chatting to you guys throughout the week. And then it only then hit um, only a couple of days ago when I finally caught up and, um, you know, started paying more attention and reading more into it. And, geez, yeah, I just, uh, for me, I think there's, can be huge ramifications. I'm not sure if from a legal perspective there's that much to be said. I think there are much more macro and economic things and issues at play here, things that are way beyond um, way beyond me. But I think that's why we you know, we get together and we shoot, shoot our thoughts together. What about you, Louisa? 
Yeah, 100%. It was really about trying to understand what happened, like just delving into, okay, so you've got a bank that um, essentially thought they were doing the right thing with all this extra capital that they had from um, all the tech companies raising money and putting in something that um, the everyday person would think would be quite um, secure, right, like what they had put their money in and then with the change of interest rates that led them to, um, yeah, really uh, be in a position where they don't actually have good financials anymore. I mean, like, David, you probably can, you know, explain this better than me, but um, it, it was a little bit like working out, okay, so they did this and then did what and then what and why are we here today now? Like, what, how did we get to this point? Um, it's crazy. Yeah, I, it's wild, right? I think, like, particularly on the Silicon Valley Bank side and how a bank works, and I think Charlie can run through that, but effectively, look, a lot of these guys were getting loans and they were early stage to growth stage tech companies. They don't really have the strongest cash flow profile. They can't approach a traditional bank that wouldn't have the appetite or swallow the appetite to lend to them. But the result and impact is that they get loans at ridiculous rates and also with you know collateral held against certain IP and assets of theirs. And it's just not the right risk profile a traditional bank would ever swallow. But it was fantastic that we had an avenue while the market was hot, while valuations were high, while everyone had positive sentiment and backing the growth of these tech companies and letting them access financing to lend. But the biggest issue, and I think some people call this a while back, is what happens when the good times stop, when the fund stops and there's no cash to service these loans, right? And yeah. So does that mean the tech industry were getting better deals from going through like, you know, Silicon Valley Bank or um, some of these other banks that uh, sort of service specifically to the emerging tech industry? It's not necessarily better deals that they had, but it was, you know, arguably at some point it's like the silver gate of the crypto banks. Some of those terms are quite heinous when you think about it, the interest rates of 20% or so, but they were very creatively structured in order to facilitate a riskier asset class of companies to be able to operate. And so that was kind of a, a useful way or creative solution um, to help growth stage companies, you know, access things beyond equity checks, right, beyond cash and, and start looking into debt. And even from a bank's perspective, it was also about how, how do you compete with the big leagues in town? Um, so even any banking street, I mean, everyone, if usually a major banks dominate such a, a big piece of the pie, like in Australia, you look at the big four and, um, you know, the deposit, assets and liabilities book um, take about 80% of the market. So you think about well, how does the, the smaller one, the regional banks, or the, the community banks, how do they um, compete? And I think we've seen some examples of that in the U.S. where, you know, as David mentioned, with Silicon Valley Bank, there is a bit of a increased appetite towards you know the emerging tech, the startups, and uh, the likes of um, Silvergate had a bit more of a, I guess, overexposure to um, you know the blockchain industry. And um, you know what I try to draw references to with Australia is that you know the prudential regulator here are pretty strict around. Um, exposure to industries, even things like real estate, which is meant to be stable and all that, there's always a cap. Even if it's with the big four, um, you you kind of hit a limit or you um, go over a limit, you can need to scale back that book to um, to kind of diversify that industry exposure. And I think that kind of obviously the events of 2022 with exchanges kind of um, been exposed and and 
inverted commas stable coins being exposed. That certainly had a bit of an impact and contagion effect that kind of ended up um, with Silvergate being one of the, the first casualties, which then snowboarded into something more. But of the, with Silvergate and SVB, they kind of had different reasons of what caused trouble, but I think they all happened at a, at a bit of a similar time kind of a time frame that one had impact on the other just purely because there were banks. Well, how about you, um, Robert? Like, I mean, when I thought about it from a legal perspective, I was like having a bank go under, like um, from financial services and payments, like you always think that that could happen and you write it in all the contracts and all the scheme rules and to protect that unlikely event. And it just, like, you just wouldn't think it happens, but we always take it into consideration. Like you want payments to clear and settle because there is that slight chance a bank might not be able to pay its debts. It can't service its liabilities. Um, and from a um, even an insolvency point of view, our laws are slightly different to the US laws. Like we have the relation back period where, you know, if you make a transaction within um six months before, prior to going into administration, then you can claw back some of those payments that you've made that have come out. I, but then it gets complicated with uh, a bank, right? It's just because they have the APRA regulated or, you know, the the um, the equivalent of that regulator overseas. It's just what a thing to unpick. Absolutely. And and you hit the nail on the head, Louisa. The, I think, you know, when this started unfolding, I definitely had a moment and was like, how lucky are we to be in Australia where we haven't had any major financial institutions crumble in, I think, known history. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but um, I don't think there are any. Whereas over in the States, has been one after the other. We had three in the space of a fortnight. And and it's you know due to the way they're regulated here, they are the backbone of the A6, which is, for those who don't know, is... Um, you know, the, the stock exchange or the major one here in Australia, then, uh, yeah, there's a reason why the banks have been prop, propped up. And to Louise's, Louise's point, it's a backbone of society. Like people count on the banks to be able to go make transactions, settle, withdraw money when they need money for certain things. And and the APRA regulations like capital ad- adequacy requirements, they're all there for good reason. And, you know, I think it, it, it almost like, implicitly shines a light on the Australian banking sector at how we do things over here. Um, but I, I, it got me thinking as well, like, you know, I mean, I don't like playing the blame game, but, you know, the, you know catching on, catching up on a few podcasts throughout the week and people were saying like, you know, where the, the, the management of SVB, SVB, were they perhaps negligent in their strategy? Um, so those questions came up, but then, People are also saying, like, you know, at a macro level, can we, should we be pointing the finger at the Fed instead? Because these all, these things, you know, from, um, you know, from the start of the pandemic, when tech had a huge, you know, rode the wave, and now they're riding the wave back down, or they're crashing, so to speak. Uh, yeah, it's 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 definitely quite interesting. But I think, um, yeah, do you, what do you guys think about that? Like. If you take a step back and zoom out at a more macro level, I'm sure you guys, I feel like you guys have so much to add here. There's a lot to unpack on that one. I think just uh, because it's, there's a lot, I mean, for starters, I think, uh, you know, interest rates were all-time lows and, uh, you know, all-time lows, you know, <clears throat> money's easy to come by. Uh, one of the, something David alluded to earlier, valuation all-time high, times were good. 
<clears throat> and maybe times were a bit too good. And so when you think about rates going up as such a in a short period of time, there's a lot of implications. You're know, trying to fight inflation and um, and all that. So it's not just. I mean, what happened? What we saw is probably one um, outcome as a result of all this happening in such a short period of time. And there's others being called out to. And obviously, banks kind of going down like this has in, you know, implications to other industries. So, I mean, th- looking back to kind of what I'm working on. Um, uh, so, obviously, stable coins, we can talk about that and USDC depegging um, because of all the, the confidence or lack of confidence in, in this context after seeing what happened with, uh, you know, $3.3 billion of reserves trapped in Silicon Valley Bank. But even what, you know, the media doesn't report, you know, things of cryptocurrency exchanges struggling to the business because of SEN and Signet going down, you know, that on-ramp, off-ramp infrastructure that um, some of these banks provided um, basically halted a lot of businesses. Uh, in many cases, maybe the smaller ones, so maybe the bigger end of town, they may have contingencies, but the smaller end of town basically had uh, too many eggs in that one basket. And that was quite a bit of a challenge and everyone was scrambling over the, in the past weeks or so, trying to have, well, develop those contingencies which which um you know with two of those banks going down it's quite a quite a challenge i think just to jump on that point there has been strong views on on some sides saying that maybe it is the government taking advantage of silicon valley bank going down to target silvergate and signature bank as well right just coincidentally saying well yeah let's just smash these crypto and, and web3 guys because we never were that supportive but then on the flip side, a lot of people blaming the government as well, mm-hmm. saying negative, you know, they think, you know, negative real rates and getting into a deflationary economy or, or sorry, recession is pure evil. So let's hike. Let's keep hiking rates until the economy slows down. Right. And that's always been an age old issue where you, you, you kind of think about how high can you rate, you know, hike rates before things break. And I think we've reached that point. And, you know, I'm still hearing commentary about how the New Zealand central bank is still one of the most hawkish on rates and would love to counter inflation and raise rates again. I think the U.S. banks are going to do that again. So we're in a weird, unprecedented zone of crazy hyper, you know, rate rises. And, yeah, it it does crush a lot of the businesses that are taking loans out and the flow and effect to banks like Silvergate, SVB, Signature Bank that make money off loans, right? And, yeah, great. Rates are high, which means they can technically make more money. But when no one has money to pay those loans, kind of, you know, no upside for anyone. Yeah, I mean, when I hear, like, when I'm just sort of digesting what you guys are saying, it's like, even if we do have great, um, you know, this new technology around blockchain and, and these different ways of doing things I feel like everything's still interconnected like you can't have that you know separation where oh well you know there's traditional finance and then there's you know new blockchain world and 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 um different ways of doing things even um stable coins like Charlie and I were sort of debating whether um you could really solve this problem because you know with stable coins a lot of their model is that they put it in a bank so that there is um, a, a viable product there that you could fund the the ecosystem of the stable coin or if, if you think of it as a scheme, you can sort of um, do that because if you have just one for one and it sits there, that stable coin will eventually just it just can't sit there because there's no way that it makes money from the money just sitting there and then you know they have 
used banks to put that money, but they can't blame the banks for doing that because if they don't put it with the bank, they'd hold it themselves and they'd come up with the same problem. Um, so there's, I don't think there's a clear way where you can split, oh, that's, that's a problem for this emerging um, economy or this is a problem for um, emerging tech and fintechs um, or this is a problem for banks. It's actually a very, like you said, a very macro problem um, across the board and we're all sort of ebbing and flowing with that. Um, which is super interesting. Um, so what do you reckon our key learnings are? Like what do you think, you know, if, if I was, if there was one thing you would take away from the last few weeks, what do you reckon it is? There's a lot to unpack. I might kind of um, start to address a little bit about um, what you just reflected on, Louisa, as well around, um, I think there's still a reliance uh, on, the, on the banking sector. I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing, but even as we think about stable coins and the journey it's on, it is still quite a bit of an early journey such that everyone, a lot of people today still rely on the banking system, on the fiat kind of system. So for stable coins to have a bit of future, there needs to be a journey where um, there's that transition. It's not like overnight, you can flip a switch and we're all operating, you know, transferring wealth on the blockchain. Um, so that's kind of probably what we're seeing, a lot of teething kind of, challenge at the moment. Um, but I think one of the key learnings for me was around just, I guess the short answer is probably diversification. Um, it sounds easier um, to, to say that word, but I think in practice it's a lot better. And I think what I mean by diversification is a lot of things, right? I mean, some of the things are reflected on number one around exposure to certain industries or certain um, groups. So if your revenue, whether it be for your revenue or your um, you know, debt obligations, that overexposure has risks. risks. Um, so that's one thing. Um, it also applies to, um, I guess, the stablecoin business as well. I think there was a lot of concentration, oh, not stablecoin, sorry, the blockchain business as well, a lot of concentration on the likes of uh, Silvergate and Signature. Um, obviously now um, not necessarily as highly publicly profiled, but uh, blockchain companies are talking to banks all over the world, right? There's, um, you know, there are some blockchain companies that had a lot of reliance on the US system, um, have considered offshore um, there's a lot of those kind of uh, activities happening. We haven't seen all that obviously unfold publicly yet, but a lot of those conversations are happening between the scenes. So really coming back, it is the kind of uh, cliche, but diversification is probably one of the, the things that really stuck out for me. On the diversification point, I think I, it's it's a weird one, right? You'd, you'd think that people would have parked their money elsewhere a lot. And, you know, it only really hit me that a lot of Aussie ASX-listed companies as well had parked a fair bit of their cash um, with Silicon Valley banks. So taking it more broadly with tech, it's not just crypto. Crypto, obviously, if you concentrate, it's highly risky. But there's a traditional software as a services company. One of them, um, Nitro, for example, had 46% of their cash parked with Silicon Valley Bank. You know, and you've got Doug, another company with 49%. You've got Dubbo with 5%. Life360, 6% of their cash. And these are stable, Aussie-listed, regulated ASX companies in the tech space. And so it makes you wonder, is there another layer of governance and regulation that's required, you know, around concentration of cash, particularly when it's in challenger banks, to use a broad term? Now, I don't think there should be because that... You know, doesn't promote competition from upcoming challenger banks coming in and providing new creative products like we know with you know loans to tech companies that SVB provides. 
But at the same time, what does that mean? Like, does it mean that we need to be, you know, more open to having better governance on these banks or or do we go back to relying on the big banks? Because, you know, even Circle, I think Charlie maybe now or, or Rob and Louisa, like the USDC and, and their, their cash reserve, they're parking back in BNY Mellon, right? They're looking for other traditional banks to go back to. And a lot, and JP Morgan's looking to buy out, you know, some of these smaller players as well. So the large banks are coming in. Is this just a terrible evolution where the big banks just take over again? We don't have those challenger banks anymore to service this sort of niche market. Again, like maybe that's a solution to addressing diversification in this risky situation that's played out. But I, I just feel like, yeah, we haven't really seen competition play out properly yet. I mean, neo banks in Australia is a perfect example as well, right? They just couldn't last. So, feels like one of the key takeaways is probably more questions than answers. Yeah. Thanks, yeah, man. I think. Uh, yeah, flowing on from that point of around diversification, I I actually kind of take uh, the other view. Well, not exactly the other view, but you know, if I was in the hands or in the feet in the shoes of say, Signature Bank or Silicon Valley Bank, would I have done anything different? I probably there's no way they could have. I mean unless they were, you know, well-seasoned vets, veterans, and they could sort of foresee that, yes, this is going to come crashing down one day. But they would have, you know, they, they seemed like they took reasonable steps at that point in time. And, you know, they, um, you know, and so for me, I think the, the key learning for me is I don't think, I think the, like, monetary policy is such a, like, is such a powerful um, tool for um, you know central go- uh, central banks to use, and I think it, it, we've seen it. Um, we've seen it play out now that you know if you hike interest rates too quickly, as you know all around the world, central banks have been doing. This is what's going to to happen. So maybe, like Charlie saying, this is another question. What else is there um, that governments or central banks can look can look to to include in their arsenal to tackle these issues like inflation so i think that's my learning around um like how powerful interest rates are uh and what they can really do on a massive scale um what about you louisa yeah i think my key takeaway was around um risk management you can have you know things in place from a legislation point of view where the government or banks are required to do certain things but at the same time what about your entity like what would be a key factor for you that would really you know um, have a material impact to your business so um, I've been working on some security of critical infrastructure work um, because that's been legislated that you know what are the things that would bring your company to a stop um, and interesting point, David, around, okay, there's some entities that they only look for one bank and they put half their money in there. Um, I think the digital assets ecosystem in Australia are almost used to putting their money in multiple banks because of that real risk of, of debanking. Um, whereas the more established companies, they don't even think that that would be a high high risk on their radar because they're just used to that security and I think that should be right like they should be confident in their banking system um to to know that they don't have to um diversify diversify because of 
bank runs, like the the real possibility of multiple bank runs happening at the same time. But um, yeah, I think the takeaway, if you're in control of something that you can manage, think about what, what it is that you can do as an entity rather than, you know, legislation will take years to come, you know, things that won't will take um a lot to change won't happen overnight but if there's things that you can do um now to own business from risk management point of view that would be my takeaway yeah i I, one of my takeaways coming out of that competition point i kind of touched on earlier and actually i'd love to raise this the more we reflect one of the takeaways on a factoid really fascinating fact basis is did you guys realize that two trillion dollars of flow or liquidity was passing through Silvergate and Signature. If you put that into perspective, and this is purely crypto money almost, that is like it's square in the top 10 GDP of countries, like equivalent to, I think, Italy's GDP and 2% of the global aggregate GDP. Like it's mind-boggling, right? And we talk about this point of diversification, but it's ridiculous. Yeah the amount of flow yeah um, but and on, even on like the, yeah. silicon valley banks like the 19th largest bank in yeah. the world and no one's really heard about it unless you're from no. the, the tech business yeah exactly exactly i mean I, I feel like maybe we've been a bit harsh on some of the big banks and the capital requirements but i understand it because the traditional banks are very exposed to retail individuals more than institutionals as well but if there is a world where we can flex a little bit and allow these traditional banks to dabble in slightly more creative solutions like SVB style optionality for tech banks or for tech companies or or edge cases like crypto, maybe we would have a better safety net of innovation around product and liquidity ratios, you know, in in the microcosm of these more regulated traditional banks. And then from there competition can flow because they can learn. Whereas because regulation has been so stringent, it's forced these newcomers to break through with their own solution without the banks having tested it first as a buffer. And that's why we have this lot of like huge risk overrunning um, the system in these edge cases or call it new frontier cases of banking. Well, it's fascinating stuff. And it's I, I think we could probably go for hours on this topic because there's so many elements to it. But um, thanks for today's first podcast um, as a group. And until next time. See you guys. Thanks. Thank you. Cheers. Have a great weekend.